Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I'm going to start a study of uh, 1 Corinthians and <clears throat> this first uh, talk on calling the cross as our mode of perceiving success. <clears throat> Last night, Faith was reading uh, from, I don't know where she was reading from, but an appeal from one of our churches that uh, one of my students is apparently on the staff there, and they want a minister of education, <clears throat> and he needs to be between 25 and 35 years old he has to have experience extensive experience with small groups he has to be an extrovert a pleasing personality good with people the appeal went on you know describing all the things that they want in their new minister of education uh they didn't say what religion particularly uh they did not specify any doctrinal or educational requirements. Uh, in fact, there were no requirements in regard to what he might believe. Uh, I believe our churches and our schools have succumbed to a notion of success that is 180 degrees contrary to the gospel. And they're gripped by ignorance and an, uh, an embrace of worldly measures of success. And so I'm going to, today I want to briefly trace the anatomy of the disease as I think it's developed. But look at Corinthians then for a potential cure. And I'm just going to start by reading First uh, Corinthians chapter 2 verse 1 to 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I'm going to read, I'll, I'll be reading other places in Corinthians if you want to re- leave it open, but Clearly, the church in Corinth is one of the most worldly churches in the New Testament. Maybe it's much like the church in the United States today, which ethically, in terms of lifestyle, looks no different than the non-Christian world, just in terms of uh, sexual immorality, rates of divorce, uh, just general lifestyle. And even as Paul will say to the Corinthians, and maybe he would say if he were here today, you do things that are unheard of even among the pagans. And so much like the church in Corinth, our churches are often ignorant of what orthodoxy looks like. They know they want to grow. They want to have lots of youth to attract more people, but I believe they're no longer able to discern sound doctrine. And the church has caved in to worldly notions of success. Maybe it's easy, most easy to see in the health and wealth gospel. You know, Creflo Dollar, Robert Tilton, you know, 
Robert Tilton, uh, that you know, he wants another jet. Creflo Dollar, he's got two Rolls Royces, but he's asking people, you know, continually give him more. Send in your money now. And actually, this idea was started by Old Roberts. If you'll send me your last bit of money, your seed money, it will grow, and you too can be wealthy just like me. Uh, seed faith, you know. Uh, and many, you know, Joel Osteen, the way he puts it, a better life now. Give me your money and it will be better for me anyway. I don't know about you. Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, they're encouraging people not to spend money on, you know, things like chemotherapy or those useless modern medical things. Send the money to them and uh, God will heal you. And, you know, they've done shows that people are actually dying of cancer and have died of cancer because they've chosen to do that. Um, so maybe money is an easy measure of success. And I believe this is not, these are not just fringe groups, as we know that Paula White, who is also a health and wealth, you know, gospeler, she's now the counselee or the, she counsels the president. And White has recently warned her listeners that you had better send your January salary as her, the seed faith, the first fruit donation. And she warns because I don't know what might happen to you if you don't give me your money. Um, I think evangelicalism cannot simply be equated with the health and wealth gospel. But it's very similar, uh, or it's very susceptible, you know, to a very similar kind of idea. I mean, the idea actually goes back to John Calvin, that the amount of money you have in your savings account will be a reflection of the fact of whether you're elect or not. Specifically, in our churches, the, the, church, the philosophy of church growth, uh, as it's now taught in our Bible colleges and seminaries, um, you know, many of our students go out and they do internships in mega churches to learn church growth methodology. And it's, they're, they're indoctrinated into the measures of success. And actually, when I, even when I was a student, uh, many, many years ago, uh, we read Robert Schuller, you know, how to do it, how to build a big, successful, you remember the Crystal Cathedral? Well, it ain't there no more because... Robert died and things fell apart. But um, Donald McGavern is actually the, he's a one-time disciples missionary who to India. And though it seemed he was quite successful, he decided his own work was in fact not successful. And uh, he proposed an alternative way of doing evangelism, missions, and church growth. And McGavern emphasized the lost are always persons. They always have countable bodies. Thus, preaching and mission should be judged by numerical results and not the effort put forth. And so the result, in short, is pure American pragmatism of you know, how this is accomplished and what the result is. And as a result, mission fields and mission methods 
even those you know, aimed at providing various forms of relief of poverty, if they do not produce more countable bodies for the faith, then under this understanding, they're poor stewardship. Now this hit Japan about, you know, 40 years ago when Faye's father was a missionary and Donald McGavern came to Japan and, you know, thoroughly examined it. It's not that Donald McGavern didn't have insight, but of course the ultimate insight is, well, Japan, the missions to Japan is ultimately an unwise investment. And in fact, many mission agencies have since pulled their missionaries from this very difficult field. The idea is if you're not producing converts, if you can't produce countable numbers, then the gospel is not successful and you need to do something different. And this is the whole seeker-friendly form of the gospel that we get in nearly all of our churches now, that... You know, you don't want to do anything to, you know, like the communion may be offensive to some people. Well, let's move that into the back of the church and maybe we can do that later privately. Um, Rick Warren, who is, you know, there's this, the mega church movement is very much a product of this. Um, he says, it's my deep conviction that anybody can be one to Christ if you discover the key to his or her heart. It may take some time to identify it, but the most likely place to start is with the person's felt needs. Now, at some level, this may be true, but taken to extremes, as it has been in the church, uh, the church then just becomes designed to meet needs and draw in more countable bodies. And the result is very similar to the health and wealth gospel. In fact, I think it's a part of the same form of thinking. Donald McGavern, along with Robert Schuller, were the key shapers then in a movement which has produced Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, Bob Russell in our own movement, all ministers of churches of you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. And they are the, you know, it's resulted in a host of conferences, institutes, books, and all of these telling preachers how they too can be successful. The Fuller School of World Mission, which was founded by McGavern, it's, you know, was later headed by C. Peter Wagner. Uh, that, along with uh, Robert Schuller's Institute for Successful Church Leadership, I believe this provided the impetus to a movement that largely paralleled the health and wealth gospel, both historically and many very same ideas. The difference is that the church growth philosophy, you know, as developed by Donald McGavern, uh, has become mainstream. That it's, you know, it's not, I always think of the health and wealth gospel as obviously uh, a sham but I'm afraid in a kind of more benign form this sham has more or less taken over our churches uh, it's the understanding promoted in seminaries in our Bible colleges 
And not just our churches, but throughout evangelical churches. And so the lure for young preachers to learn the ways of McGavern, uh, maybe it's the example of those preachers who have the thousands you know, of people in their churches. Uh, there's not ostentatious wealth, but actually there is, isn't there? Because these are always huge buildings. But the immediate lure is the ostentatious numbers and the buildings that translate into something quite similar to health and wealth. And of course the difference is that there's just mainstream acceptance of McGavern's principles. And so with church growth, numbers of body, maybe not money, but ultimately it translates The number of people you have is the sign that God is blessing you or how much God is blessing you. And so Robert Schuller identified, he says, the primary need and the secret to his success. He identified greater self-esteem. That's the gospel that we need to preach. He said, where the 16th century Reformation returned our focus to sacred scriptures, as the only infallible rule for faith and practice, the new Reformation will return our focus to the sacred right of every person to self-esteem. The fact is the church will never succeed, he says, until it satisfies the human hunger for self-value. And so today many churches are succeeding by this measure But the price of the success, I think, is cheap grace. Being a Christian really costs you nothing, but in fact will enable you to be a success, if nowhere else in your own eyes. In Corinth, the church is plagued by worldly notions of success, worldly wisdom, the pursuit of ostentatious spiritual gifts. They are in competition. They question, you know, well, who baptized you? This is 11, you know, chapter 1. I have been informed, my brethren, by Chloe's people that there are quarrels. And by this you're saying, I have of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so Paul's addressing a church which measures all things by the same mode of value as the world. And what he's going to do in this letter is try to change this value system up. To displace it with the cross of Christ as the means by which we value all things. He says the wealthy are putting on ostentatious displays of consumption. When you come together for the communion. You meet together. It's not really the Lord's Supper. In your eating one takes his own supper. And one is hungry and another is drunk. He describes the worship service as a theatrical, dramatical kind of entertainment. It's more of a competition to see who has the most spiritual gifts. I'm talking about Corinth now. Don't get confused. Because this sounds so contemporary. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, Paul warns them 
I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. They're also having trouble with sexual ethics. They're not, there's not rings of pedophiles or preachers caught in sex scandals, but Paul says it's reported there is immorality and of immorality such as does not exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Some in Corinth boast of their superior knowledge and of their exclusive access to spirituality. And so the Corinthians, very much like the church today, are caught up in issues of identity, of self-esteem. Some imagined they had special knowledge. Uh, Paul replies to them that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know. But if one loves God, one is known by him. The, the foolishness of this world, or, or rather the wisdom of this world, is foolishness before God. He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Some are arguing there is no future resurrection, and they're claiming maybe that they're already resurrected, uh, and therefore they do not have any ethical bodily responsibilities. And Paul says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I think we could sum this up though. What's their problem? In all of this they have devalued the cross. And it's the proper understanding of the cross that Paul leverages as the corrective to their misplaced notions of success. He reminds them, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He said, I did not come to you with eloquence of speech. I came to you in fear and trembling. But I preached to you Christ and Him crucified. And so the Corinthians ground their way of knowing. Maybe we, we think there's a kind of combination of Hellenistic philosophical traditions combined with Jewish and Christian ideas. Uh, there's always the idea you know, that the world in some way contains its own wisdom in paired opposites. Um, the wise person then would learn his wisdom following the cosmic order. A good life is on the order between choosing good over evil, life over death, law over sin. And both evil and right action are, have predictable rewards now very similar to health and wealth. And this is the wise man's view of reality. And Paul says this is foolishness. At the Fuller School of World Mission, Peter Wagner has seen the need. He says we need apostolic revelation for today. We need a new authority, a new voice, a new word. Apostles who receive the word of the Lord translate it into a concrete vision and announce to their followers that it is what the Spirit is saying to the churches for this time and place, thus opening the way for powerful ministry. He's 
claiming that we need a new authority. And of course, the danger is that in this new authority, the focus of the preaching of the cross um, will be displaced and dictated to with a form of the gospel that just repeats the wisdom of this world. Paul appeals throughout Corinthians to the apocalyptic vision of the Old Testament and the prophetic vision. In 1 Corinthians 1.19, he quotes Isaiah's critique of this wisdom. It says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will thwart. In 1 Corinthians, or in uh, the first chapter, verse 31, he quotes from Jeremiah. And what we have here is kind of the prophet and the apocalyptic vision of the Old Testament. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows that I am the Lord, who practices love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. And so Paul combines the prophets, their call for reform with an apocalyptic vision, and he brings this together with the appeal of the cross. And the cross then calls for a transformation of perception, born of the conviction that this present world, that Paul says this world is passing away. And this world with its illusory powers is giving way to God's new creation. And this constitutes then a new system of values which does not intersect, it does not negotiate in terms of the value systems of this world. I think that's the failing, clearly, of both church growth philosophy of the health and wealth gospel and with evangelicalism as we now have it. The new creation and its system of values depends on a new perception. New criteria are ushered in by the death and the resurrection of Christ, as he says, who died for all in 515. Even though we once, Paul says, regarded Christ from a human point of view, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this includes then a new form of understanding, a new form of perception. And all of this adjusted to new creation values. And so we value things. Paul links this value of the cross. He always links it with seeing, knowing, and a change of mind, a transformation of the mind. He warns in the beginning, the cross is a scandal, of course, for the Jews. Because crucifixion invokes the law's curse. It's foolishness for the Greeks for many reasons, but just to imagine one who dies, one who suffers on a cross, one who dies for his enemies. And yet we know that he defeated death. And so Paul sums up his gospel, I think, in this phrase. 
the logos of the cross, the word of the cross. For Jews, the logos was the law of wisdom. For Greeks, the logos signified the reason behind the cosmic order and the advances. You know, this is the Platonic logos, the advances in philosophy were connected to that logos. I believe Paul is deploying this logos of the cross to displace the wisdom of the Greeks and the signs that the Jews might look for. It's an alternative mode of perception. And maybe by this time the Jews and Gentiles, they, there's kind of a convergence in their understanding. Um, maybe that they kind of share a philosophical understanding. But for neither Jew nor Greek does death by crucifixion of God's Son conform to their understanding. The cross deconstructs this sort of reason, this sort of law, this sort of logos. And so in a world where health, wealth, megachurch members count for everything, the cross cannot be understood to confer salvation. The logos of the cross, even the phrase, is a contradiction in terms. Offensive to reasoned religious mind. Uh, the Jew or Greek heard folly, you know. And by the way, when they hear this, they expect when Paul says folly, they expect him next to explain wisdom. But in place of wisdom, he says, is God's power. Here is the power of God revealed in the cross of Christ. And to this to the Jew or Greek, this is a very strange way to put it. Health, wealth, worldly success, huge numbers, and ostentatious lifestyle is precisely not the measure of success of the cross. The cross destroys the valuation system of sin and death, the world that is perishing. Freeing its captives, Paul says, and at the same time it creates an alternative world, the world of the ones being saved through this same self-gifting sacrificial love. Paul warns though, but a natural man in 2.14 does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, foolishness to him, and he cannot comprehend them. Because they are spiritually appraised. The point is not to become successful by what a natural man values, uh, but to become successful according to the cross of Christ. Paul says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in 126 in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You do, uh, we, we do speak wisdom, he says, among those who are mature, but it's a wisdom not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. This is in Chapter 2, verse 6 to 9. The wisdom hidden since the foundation of the world 
predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In Dante's picture of hell, which is sort of delightful sometimes to read and contemplate, just who might be boiling in blood and, you know. Uh, He pictures hell in a series of concentric rings or circles. And hell is, you know, it's made up of those who have rejected, I'm quoting, spiritual values by perverting their human intellect for fraud or malice against their fellow man. He reserves the depths of hell, which would be circle eight and nine, the very inner rings, for those who have committed spiritual fraud. Um, Those who, he quote, quote, pervert and falsify ecclesiastical office, counsel, authority, psychic influence, and material interdependence. Or those who made money for themselves out of what belongs to God. This is his poetry here. Rapacious ones who take the things of God that ought to be the brides of righteousness and make them fornicate for gold and silver. The time has come to let the trumpet sound for you. And then he pictures the tortures that these might be undergoing. Now, I don't know if Dante is the best guide for working out the eternal justice, but there is a certain satisfaction in picturing Joel Osteen lined up with Paula White in there. But never mind, I won't go there. C.S. Lewis has another vision of hell. It's a hell that we kind of make for ourselves, and I can imagine for Schuller, McGavern, the megachurch preachers, Something along a future imagined by C.S. Lewis in which the future is furnished with our own desires. Picture the new authority. Perhaps there's going to be a great crystal cathedral populated by lifeless, you know, innumerable, lifeless, countable bodies. But they will have been rendered brain dead by the gospel they have preached a gospel focused on self-esteem as the mode of success by a new apostolic authority and to focus on action and on numbers more than teaching. Well, that echoes the health and wealth gospel, doesn't it? And it makes the preaching of the cross, I believe, null and void. The notion of pandering to self-values for success by means of this kind of alternative authority. Maybe we do need boys between 25 to 35 who are not burdened by heavy intellectual notions of the cross. We need those who are wise according to the world, wealthy, charismatic, maybe with some flair. We need extroverts with cleverness of speech. The power of the cross, though, begins not with the promise of health and wealth. 
Christ bids us to come and die in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe this would be a good advertisement for a preacher. Wanted someone willing to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Looking for those willing to defeat this world's evil through rejecting this world's notions of success. Looking for those who are willing to bear the birth pangs of new creation by embodying the power of God in the word of the cross. Let's sing our hymn. Forging Plowshares is a community ministry of dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.